Welcome back to Common Sense Fantasy Baseball. I'm Drew, and I'm here today with John L., uh, also known on Twitter as MLB Moving Averages. John, thanks for being on the podcast. Man, thank you, Drew. This is awesome. I'm so excited. And I was I was just telling you before, I could tell already from the conversation we had, today is going to be super productive, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of takeaway for everybody, man. I, I can't wait to get into this. Like, let's go. Let's go. Well, I love that you, you know, you have a stock market background like me and you kind of see things as, as what's the market giving us, right? And so we were just talking about looking, you know, in the early rounds, I, I often say this and you were saying the exact same thing. You really can't go wrong as long as you draft somebody that is supposed to be there, you know, in those in those first couple rounds where you're drafting. Um, and so we, we kind of agreed that we're, you know, we're, we're looking not to take like a Pete Alonzo in the first couple rounds because we want to, we want to just build the strongest strengths that we can build. And, and, you know, while he has a lot of things going for him, you know, there are some, some more scarce resources that you want to build up there. And I thought that was an interesting conversation. And I think it's going to be really interesting to talk to you about this, you know, talk through the ADP, like I have been with guys to avoid at their price and guys to target at their price because you seem to really get it, the common sense point that it's all about what the price is and what the market's giving us. One, like one million thousand percent, what's after a trillion is a quadrillion, right? So one quadrillion percent. You know, you can't, you can't force your will on the market. Trying to force your will on the market, and sometimes that comes in the form of trying to outsmart it, overpaying and jumping prices. You know, these are these are roads to ruin, essentially. You gotta stay within yourself and understand that even if like in you know, in particular, right, fantasy baseball, it's players. Players are the commodity. Um, and you know, let's use some specific examples. Like, all right, you you said Pete Alonso. So this is a guy that's gonna give you a ton, and I think everybody's in agreement on that. But there are definitely some holes, right? So that's not enough in itself to say I'm going to take or leave this guy because, like you mentioned before, it's about that kind of depth, right? So before I make my decisions up front, I think it needs to be done in reverse. So, like, I almost make my first pick in the back because it's not until I sift through the bottom that I know what I like and that will determine the scarcity, which will determine that relative price against the market, because that really is everything. Like you're saying, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to fall in love with any one commodity because anybody can snipe you with the draft room. And I'm just not going to be upset. I refuse to sacrifice the emotional capital aside from the draft capital. Right. We got to stay sharp because it is a mental game on top of it. I think that's that's the perfect way to frame it, you know, like especially like you said, starting at the back of the draft and saying, well, if I, you know, let's say I miss on Pete Alonzo and miss on all these guys because they're going too early for me, you know, maybe 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 he would become a value for me somewhere, but he's he never gets there. So what's a what's a similar commodity if I'm looking for that profile? And I know I know before the podcast we were talking about C.J. Cron. Uh, you know, when he was going around the, the back of the draft, like, you know, closer to pick. 275 to 300, you know, that was an incredible deal because you, you could, you could squint and even in Tiger stadium, you could see him putting up similar stats to like a Pete Alonzo. And I, I know we won't go down the, the first base rabbit hole too far, but you know, we were talking about some other guys we like there for, for a better average sort of, you know, in between the two. But when you know you have that available late, it really changes what you do early because you're just not going to reach for a player that's going to be, 
you know, 5% or 10% better than a player you can get 200 picks later. Yeah. I mean, if uh, to use the analogy you said about squinting, man, when we're talking about 200 picks of, of difference in price, if you can squint and see the same image, you got to take the 200 pick discount. You know, you absolutely have to. Another, scare another stuff huge at the front. That, That's really where I was going to leave it. Yeah. I, sorry to interrupt, but you, no, you, no, made no, me, no. you made me think of another one we were just talking about. And I, I, know, I said I wasn't going to go too far down the, the first base rabbit hole, but we were talking about Fr- Freddie Freeman. We were talking about Freddie Freeman um, at pick 19 or 20 or wherever he's going right now. And how we both like Josh Bell to be, you know, not he's not going to be Freddie Freeman, but he could be 90% of Freddie Freeman. Um, you know, I, I would have, and, and he's going, you know, 75, 80 picks later, he's going uh, around pick 100, 100. So it's just uh, a constant theme, I think, with both of us and the way we draft. Yeah, I mean, those, those two players particularly, it's interesting because if you were to, uh, you know, if you kind of strip away um, the names and stuff, and you just kind of serve people up all the profile, man, you know, they're, it's pretty close, you know, <laughs> it's pretty close. And for me, it's, it's certainly too close for 80 picks. And then to expand on that, it's even more important when those 80 picks are the front 80 picks, right? I mean, 80 picks means a lot less after 300 than it does when we're talking about pick 120, you know, or 25 and 105, it's just it's just really, really close. Don't get me wrong. I, I love Freeman and I, you know, gun to my head. I think he's going to finish in front of Josh Bell. But that doesn't mean he's going to totally clear him. You know, they both have the 35 plus homer potential. They can both go over 200 ribbies plus runs, even with Bell in kind of a stunted pirate offense. That doesn't you know, that that context thing doesn't shake me. If there's a guy in the middle of the lineup with guys in front of him, especially, you know, um, Newman and Frazier might be moving around in front of him. He easily could hit that that ribby mark again. 100 ribbies is not out of question for Josh Bell. All the X stats are are awesome. You know, he put up the 570 slug, but his X slug was 560s right behind it. You know, everything everything was really there. I love the walk rate on Bell. I love the K minus walk rate, seven percent. To me, that's elite. That's that shows a lot, and it portends some repeatability. You know, all the hard hate. All the heart rates on uh, Josh Bell are great. He's actually five ticks higher, five full ticks higher than Freeman. Five full ticks, for example, is probably, oh, man, 25 percentile points. You know, then for a guy like Freeman that's near the top, that puts Josh Bell in the elite range. Josh Bell is in the top 10 overall in max MPH, you know, total barrels and plus 95 mile per hour hits. He's just, he's awesome. He's, uh, they have the same exact barrel per PA off by a 10th. They have the same barrel per BBE. It's the same off by a 10th. You know, these players are extremely similar. So when we're considering again, 80 picks of value, man, take the value, take the value. And for me at the cost, it's Bell, 10 times out of 10 over Freeman. Sorry, everyone. Uh, I, I think you put it perfectly that it's it's all about the value. And like you even said, Freddie Freeman, you're going to take him every time, um, you know, if between the two, if they're at the same price, right? Uh, he was, yeah, absolutely. He was the yeah. number 12 overall player last year uh, in, you know, in returned value. And Josh Bell was number 38. But, you know, 12, 
that's a little bit of value at where Freddie Freeman's going. But if Josh Bell even does what he did last year again and is the 38th overall player and you're getting him at 98, that's value. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we're we're sort of looking at this through the through the, a very similar lens. Yeah, but, um, and it's the way I go about it. You know, it's my own it's my own process. You know, I'm letting everybody see and I. And there's still going to be people that disagree, and, and like that's fine, right? And that's what creates a market, right? That's a mar- like I said, I don't force my will upon it. I view it as almost like a living kind of breathing thing, like one of those giant murmurations of starlings you'll see on planet Earth. You know, you're only one of those, and you could decide to fly all the way in front of the flock, and you could decide to fly all the way in the back. You could decide to be in the middle or any variance in between, but you don't get to choose where it goes. Yeah. No, exactly. Well, uh, in, in that light, we're going to pick up with um, round 17. Um, I, is there is there anything you want to say in general before we get started? Because I think we're just going to start going through these rounds and, and with the idea in my head that kind of like you were saying before, uh, you want to look at the back of the draft uh, to, to really s- sketch out your strategy. And so we're going to try to find guys and however many rounds we get through um, – that we can sort of target at certain positions uh, and that might I, you know, inform what we do earlier in the draft. So yes, anything absolutely. more you wanted to say about that before we started? No, no, no. Go if, no, if I was going to say anything, it would have been just that, that right. That's the purpose of the exercise. As much as I want to find like the new hot thing and the sleeper and all that stuff, that's not really the goal here. My goal is to find exactly what I'm always looking for. Gotcha. A quality profile on a good con in a good context with a starting role, you know, if that translates into all those other things, shiny new toys and all that great stuff, then that would be great. But that's not necessarily what I'm doing. The, I'm not necessarily equating, um, 200 round, you know, uh, 19 pick 240 as these like random dart throws with these, you know, incredibly high risk factors. That's not what I'm trying to do. Gotcha. All right. Well, um, so I was talking to Colin Weatherwax last time we we left off at pick 240. So let's pick right up at pick 241. We're we're looking at um, at draft champions. And sometimes, you know, obviously this is what we're talking about, right? Players move up and down. So if we if we repeat a player, that's fine. But we're going to start with pick 241, the first pick in round 17, and that's Shin Su Chu. So I'll just keep I'll just rattle off the round, and then you sort of make a note of anybody you want to talk about. Uh, either either targeting or avoiding. So you got you got Chu at 241, Francisco Mejia at 242, AJ Puck at 243, then Yadier Molina, Ryan Braun, Nomar Mazaya, Mazara, Sandy Alcantara, Adrian Hauser. Stop! 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 Bye! 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 Okay. Bye! Bye! Where's the bye button? Bye! 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 <laughs> Do we want to? I want all of the house. Stop right there. (laughs) All right, I'll I'll get to the second half of the round later. I've got to stop uh, for the siren that's going off, and you can talk about how. I I was gonna just read the whole round, but uh, please. All right, go, 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 go. At least you. (laughs) You, you know where to put my bookmark. Stick my bookmark All right. right there. We know we're coming back to Hauser. Uh, what, how many did I get through? Nine, uh, Peralta, Dave, David Peralta, uh, Michael Chavis, Austin Hayes, Randall Grichuk, Anthony Disclafani, Tom Murphy, and Travis Darnode. So that is the 17th round at least this week or the last 10 days, whatever we're looking at, two weeks. So, uh, so I know you want to talk about Adrian Hauser, so why don't we start there? <laughs> 
Well, oh, just just quickly because I I know where I'm going to go with him. You know, a lot of these guys, um, this point of the draft, you're starting to really see some obvious warts. Um, and depending on the format, that could be a bad thing if that wart is playing time. You know, again, markets kind of make their own decisions, so I make my own decisions. A uh, guy like Mejia, for example, you mentioned, it kind of sounds nice. You feel like, oh, wow, catcher eligibility, and he's got this great discipline. I'm a little worried about the playing time. There's a lot of playing time issues with the Padres. There's no DH there. So, like, to me, that's an automatic pass. You know, Molina at this point is really a singles hitter, so I'm not doing my catching shopping here. Just real uh, quick guys, on Molina. Um, he came up last time. He's actually fallen to this round because I remember talking about him with Colin. And we, we both said we were targeting Molina, and now he's fallen seven picks later. So that well, just goes along with what a, we're he's saying. He's not a total sinkhole. You know, he's definitely like a professional hitter type of guy. I just think a lot of I think a lot of what I wanted is probably not there. Um, as far as catcher strategies, because I'm generally playing two catcher leagues, I find I have one catcher before him, and then I'm not coming back until well after him. So, yeah, you know, catcher strategies, sense. everyone kind of finds. Yeah, everyone has to find their own way. If you are the type where you – I don't want to say punt catching because I don't like that because I think Molina has a chance to finish as a C1, so that's not a punt. But if I hadn't gotten – Guys that I like that maybe falls like I, you know, it's right. We're talking about using the back to define the front because I'm not crazy about these guys. I, I'd like to get like a Will Smith probably, you know, I find I have a lot of Will Smith because I love the profile and then I love the price because again, it's a two catcher league. If it's a one catcher league, I don't really want any of these guys. I kind of get my catcher in the last round to be completely honest. Um, gotcha. AJ Puck is super interesting. Of course. And there's going to be a riverboat gambler who's all over him. Don't expect his price to stay here. As much as I love the upside and his hair, um, I don't think the innings are going to be there. I do think he will be impactful on a per inning basis. I don't think that's really a question. But the A's also, I believe, you know, they're going to contend. So they might have plans to keep him involved through the playoffs. Um, that was something Scott Jensted said on the Rotowire pod, and not only is he very smart and a must-follow, he's also a big A's fan. And I kind of like to get the homers because, listen, they're watching every day. So as much Puck is probably the only other name that I'm really interested in at the price. But I don't, I don't think know. 240 is true. I think I've been seeing him go closer to like 210, and I believe that will be closer to the real price. I think you're right. I think he's going to start moving up, even maybe even more. You know, it looks yeah, like his, no, I agree. His, I his men pick is 214 the last couple of weeks, but I think he's going to move up even more. So yeah, I don't know. Guys I'm not sure if right I should even admit this about J AJ Puck, but I, I had I, until you said that about the hair, I just had not uh, seen him, and uh, <laughs> he looks like Axl Rose. I, yeah, I love oh, it. great. Well, as long as, whoa, whoa, whoa. Providing we're getting, um, you know, 1994 Terminator 2 Axl Rose and not uh, 2016 <laughs> Axl Rose that looks like he should be carrying groceries from the store to the car. To the, but uh, that's another story for another day, man. Um, okay, uh, so these a lot of these guys, again, you know, I don't feel like pick 250 is when I'm ready to start sacrificing crucial things like playing time. So Ryan Braun, between injuries and PT, I'm worried. No Mamazara, same kind of thing. Uh, Alcantara, we and you spoke about before the show. I do like him. I think his rising price is putting him out of where I'm willing to pay. So Peralta, same thing. Okay, who does that leave? My boy, Adrian Hauser. I'm fully expecting 
his price, which is already on the rise, to absolutely continue to rise, uh, not to, you know, toot my own horn that I'm some kind of market maker. I don't think I've quite made it there yet, but I have been beating this drum for quite a while. I will continue to do so. Why? Because of the upside in the price, man. Like I'm saying, you know, the role is there. The profile is there. And the price, you know, the price is there. We're talking about a tr just an absolutely tremendous amount of upside. Again, uh, to bring up kind of stripping the names. I like to strip the names. So I have I to ask. Like us. So, so I have to ask about Hauser. Has there been some kind of like tangible change that he made? Uh, you know, I don't really see. I guess he actually, maybe he lost some time in 2018 or 2017. Yeah, 2017, he must have been hurt because he didn't pitch many innings. But, you know, it, it looks like at, at in, in 2018, especially at AAA and then his, his just 13 innings in the majors, he was not a big strikeout pitcher. And then, of course, in his 130-plus innings in 2019, he was, although he didn't have – uh, you know, a bruising swinging strike rate to, to back it up. So has has he made some kind of change that you know of, or is there something uh, that's causing him to get more strikeouts than we might expect? Well, Adrian Hauser, again, somebody I've totally been in love with. Um, when I want to answer that question, right, the first thing I do is kind of go to the pitch mix. Mm -hmm. And there is a clear, I mean, just an – it's I wish there was a better word. It's just it's almost like it is so distinct. The changes that he made year over year and then to zoom in onto 2019, he made changes after that initial change. So when I see that, that always kind of, you know, piques the interest. Right. Because sure, sure. that might. Right. That kind of those kind of actual mark changes, you know, could be something that skews older results right where perhaps the market looking back is weighing them too heavily so in uh 2018 he is he used his four seamer just at an incredible an incredible incredible clip i mean no, he, he hadn't gone lower than 47 percent with it at high in a single month of 83 percent you know that that's almost like being like a, a one-pitch guy. He mixed in the changeup and the curveball, but they were both really, really low, you know, in the single digits. So it was really – his arsenal was really dominated by the four-seamer. I mentioned that 47% low, and I don't know if other people, uh, you know, in the Brewers organization are using any kind of technical analysis also, but I found it interesting because that same level ended up being – that old low ended up being the new high – when we move to 2019. So he picked up, started 2019 with his fastball usage at the old low. That ended up being the new high, and it tracked down every single month from that kind of 45, 46 range all the way down to like the 30s and then below. You know, he coupled that, um, introduced the, what do we got? He introduced um, the sinker here. So he introduced the sinker he wasn't using at all. It had been as low as a zero usage in 18, as high as like a, you know, five, 10%. But you got to be careful with that. You know, overweighing pitches in the single percentage, they do have some use, but not to be overcounted. Again, a little bit of technical look here. It's interesting. The sinker had a high in 2018 of roughly 14%. 
we pick up in 2019 the old high. Now, this is the flip. The old high is now the new low. So he started off the year using a sinker at that old high in the high teens. So now it started at 18 and worked its way progressively all the way up into the 40s. Okay. Then he introduced a slider into some mid-range. So he kept the curveball, the slider, and the changeup. He's really mixing those up. They're intertwining and kind of shifting all around that like 4 to 10% usage. Okay, so he kind of has like an off-speed basket. But the real change, like I said, is in the four-seam and sinker usage. So there's a tremendous, tremendous amount of um, usage change to be marked. So now let's go to the result end. And what's the first thing we see, right? I mentioned a spike in sinker change. The first thing we should be thinking is a spike in ground ball percentage. Did we get that? And the answer is a resounding yes. He was a sub 40% ground ball pitcher in 2018. He went over 53% in 2019. So to answer your question in 42 million words or less, yes, we had some tremendous, tremendous usage changes, you know. So to me, I've kind of tossed, I've kind of tossed 2018. Hmm. What, okay. what happens when we toss 2018 and look at this 2019, which now I have no reason to think um, that with his, you know, his 80 innings as a starter, you know, which is it is pretty good, and um, it should allow him the room, you know, to get up to a uh, buck twenty, a buck thirty. Um, the the projection systems have him even a little higher than that, which is really encouraging. Steamer at one forty three, uh, the bat at one fifty five, which I love because if we get the twenty nineteen Hauser for one hundred and fifty five innings. We're all going to be really, really happy. And guess what? He's going to be on that list of guys that soared 100 picks next year because he put up elite statistics over those 80 innings. You know, 80 innings is not 25 innings. 80 innings is enough to, you know, start checking some boxes. And like I said, you're coupling it with a tangible change. His expected batting average, 226, ex-slug 352, ex-woba 281. That is one of the best expected triple slashes and i'm using air quotes you can't see me in <laughs> the league remember we mentioned that kind of his elevation context you know now the ground balls are super high the fly balls are super low below you know to over 25 percent 25.4 is excellent how about the line drives he has a great line drive rate sub 23 percent so his entire elevation basket as i like to refer to it is excellent so we have the expected stats look great the elevation stuff is great how about the hard hit stuff the hard hit stuff is fantastic 35 percent hard hit rate on Statcast, five percent barrels per batted ball event in elite 3.2 percent barrels per pa and an average ev of 86 miles the max EV was only 110.4. All of those numbers are like firmly, firmly, firmly in the top 20th percentile or better. I didn't want to just run, 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 on and on and on. But if you want to pull the threads on this guy, he was great as it was. And <laughs> it turns out that he actually, you know, should have outperformed all that stuff. Uh, they were on a, on a, you know, a, a good team in a uh, poor division. You know, those are all things, of course, you know, we have to think about, right? Wins are a real thing. The back end of that bullpen 
you know, is at least uh, pretty good. So I, I'm seeing a lot of boxes being checked for Adrian Hauser. And I guess it explains, you know, I, I can't really wonder why we've seen the spike we did um, because it, it's happening. And I, like I said, I think it's, I really think it's 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 going to continue to happen. Let me just let me just tackle one more thing. I want to toss it back to you. See if I got everything on him. Um, I always like to check um, Alex Chamberlain's um, pitch leaderboard. If anybody out there is not using it, you can contact him, and for a small donation, he will give it to you. He's not only brilliant, he's also a bit of a philanthropist. Man, if you are not using this, I know for a fact there is at least one hole in your fantasy game. When you bring up his all these wonderful expected stats, and when you bring up that already elite 5% barrel rate, Alex developed an expected barrel rate. His expected barrel rate is a third lower at 3.6%. So this guy's incredibly hard to get a hold of. And the strikeouts are there, right? It was plus 9K per 9. He gave us 9.4K per 9 with a seven and a half walk rate and a 3.7 xFIP. Somebody show me why he's going at, you know, at this range. I'm not quite sure. For me, I'm picking him every single time I could get him here. Like I'm saying, I didn't just jump out of my chair at, for that being the selling point. You know, I, I had the layered argument, and, and he's my guy. Wow, well, that's, that's a lot. Um, uh, you know, more than I've looked at him for sure, I, I definitely – uh, agree with you like he's the expected stats are great he's he's up there you know with with um players going several rounds earlier as far as xba xwoba and um i'm sure alex's stuff i had not looked at uh, at all that uh as in depth and i and i didn't really realize the uh the ground balls had come up that far um, as the strikeouts came up too, uh, you know, we're talking about a very small sample in 2018, but, but still let's, um, he, he is a legit ground ball pitcher. And, um, the only, the only question mark to me still is where, where these strikeouts came from, because, you know, it's not the swinging strikes. Maybe he's getting a lot of called strikes. I haven't really looked at that, but, um, it's, it's intriguing. I, I guess I haven't had a lot of luck with, um, guys that, don't get the strikeouts, but he, you know, he's getting them somehow. And, um, so I'm just, I'm just intrigued by that. Um, but, but I haven't really, uh, I guess figured it out yet, but yeah, everything else about be, his profile. You know, I probably have that. I probably have that here because you, you are right. Some of that, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know what? Let me, let me, I'm going to refer back to that same page to board. So for anybody wondering there, there is certainly an answer because, I mean, again, right, if you're looking for strikeout guys, we want to know if he's inducing chase. He doesn't really induce a lot of chase, right? His, um, his chase rate is below 30, so, like, that's not great at all. His swinging strike rate is also below 10. So those are not, you know, those are not great numbers of guys you kind of expect to be super high K guys. Now, again, I'm not kind of, I'm not calling for 12K per nine, <clears throat> I, I think I do kind of expect from watching him, I think I do expect the same 9K per nine. And the answer lies in what you were saying, and it's in called strikes. So he has five pitches in his arsenal. Every single one of them has a better than 10% called strike percentage. Four of them are above 15%. Two of them are above 20%. And that his cut 
fastball, the cutter. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's a curve. It's CU's curve. I'm sorry. My mistake, everyone. His curveball has a 24% called strike rate. So there's your answer. He's buckling guys with the curve. He's keeping the ball down with the sinker that when they make contact, it's poor contact and it's on the ground. And then he's locking them up. He's locking them up with the curveball. The other high called strike is the two seamer. So he's got an excellent, he has an excellent two seam fastball, right? Last year, his two seam fastball came with a 322 Wobicon. That's weighted on base average on balls, you know, where they made contact, which for me is the future of these stats because we're not really concerned about uh, walks and other stuff like that, right? Or, you know, we want to know when the back gets put on the ball. The expected Woba on contact, expected Woba on contact was 271. That is off the charts. That is remarkably good. And it's the pitch he throws the most. So he is incredibly effective with his two-seamer because it, you know, it, it tails. It has a an elite, um, it nearly 15-inch horizontal movement. So, you know, some of this stuff I'm kind of seeing, not say for the first time, but I haven't really quantified all of it, I guess, because I kind of sold myself on the argument beforehand. But <laughs> if you ask me, the more threads I'm pulling, the more I love this because – you know, this is something that um, someone I follow, Rob Silver, um, always talks about uh, when he's doing pitching analysis. And, of course, his pitching analysis is brilliant, is guys that have these, you know, individual plus plus awesome pitches. And Hauser kind of has two. So there's so much to like here. You know, that even in a in a day where he might not have the curveball, he could rely on the two-seamer and vice versa. And then, of course, there are going to be days when they're both working. So I think there's room here for Adrian Hauser to really finish this. Man, <laughs> you want to laugh? I'm laughing now because I kind of – I gave you the rope-a-dope on bold predictions, and I'm about to drop one, you know, where <laughs> Adrian Hauser could be, you know, in the top. You know, listen, he could be in the top, I don't know, 30 starting pitchers, potentially, right? I mean, Mike, Mike Clevenger showed us last year um, how important innings pitched are, right? Because he was able to finish in, inside the top 20 with only 120-some-odd innings. So I was basing that top 30 SP off, you know, Hauser would need that entire every bit of that 155 the bat is calling for. Remember, I'm not really shooting the moon here. A lot of this excitement has to do with the price and a guy who could be your, you know, sixth or seventh starter, which is phenomenal. You know, that's how you win at fantasy baseball. I'm not going to set myself up to make Hauser my second starter. That's kind of asinine, right? But we have to find a way where he comes in as our fifth or sixth and perhaps is the best sixth starting pitcher in the league. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to be watching Hauser this year because if it, I think, you know, the, what you point out about the called strikes, you know, maybe the difference between someone like him and someone like Dallas Keuchel, who, who, you know, is just as ground ball heavy, but possibly not um, as prone to get strikeouts as someone like Adrian Hauser. So that, uh, you know, and I know a lot of this ca- called strike stuff, I know, Alex Fast has worked on and uh, other guys, you know, I, I think could be the next step that we all need to take. But I, I sort of throw a throw a mea culpa because I am I'm not quite there yet. And um, so I have not been on Hauser, but you you may very well be right. 
You know, it's, um, certain, right? it's certainly a compelling argument, right? I always, I always challenge people to disagree, and I hope, you know, I hope we pick up a couple followers and people do exactly that. Like, really yeah. push back, you know, if you think the one, you know, the one three five whip was bothersome, you know, I think you know what my answer is going to be. You know, the Babbitt was three twenty three on poorly hit balls with a lot of expected stats to back it up and a low walk rate. So yeah, I think it's good to call for, you know, uh, an answer of sorts if. If people have the data, and I know that you know some guys are developing this in a cool way, so so that's that's some good word about Hauser. We'll we'll see what happens. Uh, let me go through the next few guys, kind of like you did, and uh, you know there's not a, there's not a lot for for me to say about some of them, but but David Peralta is is definitely a question mark for me. You know he's he was so good in 2018, and then you know 2019 was marred by injury, but I'm not 100% sure that's all it was, and you know he's into his 30s, I just don't really know what to expect, to be honest. He never he never had a, a breakout before a couple of years ago. Uh, Michael Chavis, I pretty much stay away from just because there's so much more certain things I feel like you can get at these positions. I think he's first and second base. And, you know, he may give you the power, but we don't, you know, I think his expected average last year was um, Joey Gallo-esque. So I, I'm just really not sure what you're going to get there. Austin Hayes could be great. He, he had a super hot month last year but uh again I mean, these aren't hard avoids these are just question marks right and we're just looking for value we're looking for for things that we know what we can get so i you know i wouldn't be surprised to see like a 2010 line from austin hayes but i also wouldn't be surprised if it came with a, a 250 something batting average instead of the, the the great 300 batting average that he put up over a month last year um randall gritchuk is, is super interesting if you need late power but again, I think you're going to get like a 240 batting average. So you, it's really sort of how you build your team becomes very important there. Um, Anthony Desclafani, I know, is a guy that a lot of people are on uh, and I think can can ha- definitely has a chance to sort of take the next step as a pitcher. Creeping up into, you know, pick 250-ish or so, I'm just really not sure if that's the best use of your draft capital here. Um, Tom Murphy, kind of the same thing at catcher. You know, I, I, he... I think I could see him getting 20 plus home runs. I could see the batting average being 220. So, you know, where does that fit in um, to your catcher plan? And Travis Darnod, maybe not a bad way to go here at catcher. But, uh, you know, again, I'm not 100%. I think I would rather take uh, Yadier Molina earlier in the round. So, one guy I want to go back to as a potential target, and, and I need you to tell me, John, why I, I, I like this guy, but I haven't gotten him anywhere. And that's the first guy in the round, Shin Su Chu. You know, his projections are great. You know, they've got him for basically 2010 or better and, uh, you know, a decent average, 255, 260. So not not killing you there. And not only that, but he's got the track record where he's actually done it Um, for whatever reason. I have I'm just not drafting him. I'm not he's not factoring into my plan. I can't seem to work him in when I'm sort of sketching out what I want on my team. And, you know, I like this. Uh, I like the idea of this um, because it comes with good counting stats. Uh, He's supposed to hit at the top of the lineup, sort of like he always has. And so 90-plus runs. I'm sort of doing this from memory, but, you know, decent RBIs. But why am I not uh, drafting Sin Chu Chu, and what are you doing with him? I am not drafting him because I am an unabashed ageist. (laughs) <laughs> um, he's 37. He is, especially when I'm, you know, especially when I'm looking for speed and you know what? I am okay getting burned by ageless wonders. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm all, I'm okay getting burned with kind of anomalistic players that don't fit 
you know, what I've kind of built is a somewhat successful strategy. And it's not to knock Shin Su Chu or say he won't do it again. He seems to be good for 650 plate appearances every single year, double-digit steals. I mean, like, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not putting down what's going on there. You know what I mean? There is production. And I, again, admittedly, I've been wrong about him the past three years. After the shortened 2016, especially, I was like, ha, 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 you know, this is what I was talking about the whole time. And then he kind of, you know, dunked it in my face a little bit the last three years. But, you know, there. Um, to go back to what we were saying originally, um, because I guess I have more of a, a realistic answer, because, again, I, if I really needed it that bad, I would go for the production. I think I have my a younger version of a Shinsu Chu in the 280s. Um, so I'm not sure if we're getting there today, but if we can, we can definitely circle back if you remember to remind me in my, you know, rambling to mention who my Shin Su Chu was because I am skipping him here because I don't, I don't know if I love the playing time situation there too. There seems to be a lot of people right there going to try and uh, get Solak in a mix. It's just, there seems to be a lot of like moving pieces in, in Texas this year. Yeah, well, let's do that. Try um, observe him. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, let's 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 look at uh, the next round here in a second, and um, we'll come back to that idea. Yeah, I think for me, it's the idea of I, I think I'm a bit ageist too, and and also you know I'm I'm big on peripherals, so I'm big on you know what's what's his actual speed, what's his actual um, you know the, what's the power that he's shown, how many barrels has he shown, and some of those things line up exactly with what Shen Chu Chu does. I think he's a 260-ish hitter. I think he's a 20 to 25 home run hitter. Um, you know, he had 15 steals last year. In 2018, he had six steals. So I'm just not not willing to to sort of bet that he can keep doing it um, at the level he did in 2019. I think you know. He, he may be a little bit overvalued because of uh, uh, how good 2019 was. So I'm not saying, you know, again, I think the theme for me in this entire round is none of these guys are avoids, but I'm not 100% targeting any of these guys either, either other than per, perhaps Yadier Molina, if that's how I've decided to go on catcher. You know, if I haven't gotten a real Muto early, if I've missed on Salvador Perez and Sean Murphy, a couple of my favorites, you know, maybe that's where I'm going for catcher. But um, what do you say? Let's get into the next round and um, see how far we can get. I don't, I don't know what your, your, you know, your time uh, no, looks I'm like good. today. I'm good to go. I, be... want, I actually want to double back just, just, re, just really, really sure. quick because there is a really interesting. Yeah, there's an interesting comp here with two guys you had mentioned, right? So you mentioned Shinsu Chu. You also mentioned Austin Hayes. Okay, so Shinsu Chu projected for 23 homers and 10 steals. Austin Hayes projected for 21 homers and nine steals. So obviously Shin Tzu Chu's is higher in both. However, you have to consider the entire projection. Shin Tzu Chu is being projected for 665 plate appearances, which for a 37-year-old I feel might be a bit lofty, but regardless, it is the projection. So uh, I just spoke about this with Derek Cardi on my Turn 2 podcast. And, you know, it's important for people when applying projections – Right. To not only not just use them blindly, but to make sure that you're pushing back against them. Don't just agree with him either. OK. And this goes to Austin Hayes's projection. Although the Homer and the steals and I'm sorry, the average are essentially the same 255 versus two, you know, uh, 
258. It's the same exact thing, more or less. You know, two bips. Austin Hayes is only being projected for 480 playing appearances. So what I was getting to with Derek and applying his projections is if you you can agree and disagree with his projections simultaneously, meaning you can still want to use the bat, but you may disagree with his assessment of playing time, as I do. Therefore, if you were to project Austin Hayes for 600 opposed to 500, which is a 20% bump, you have to bump homers and steals by 20%. And I, as dumb as it sounds, I actually got his more or less, you know, lack of a better term, his permission to apply this properly because I want to make sure that I wasn't missing any like weighted factors or anything like that. So, man, Austin Hayes is a younger and much better version of Shinsu Chu. On top of that, he will be hitting in the heart of a lineup that is pretty good. Obviously, the Orioles stink, but it's more so because of the pitching. He will also spend roughly 70% of his games being played in parks with top 10 park factors. So even if I had them as a toss-up, when I start to then pull threads on that specific comp, I can't imagine taking Shin Su Chu over Austin Hayes. End rant. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's exactly you know how I think is like you know when I'm when I'm looking at picking a player, um, and and typically I'm sketching out my team before the draft and my targets, and then I'm just adjusting during the draft. But but that's that's exactly what I would do here. And maybe there's another you know layer to this because. You know, at outfield, I'm looking to get a lot of things. I think, you know, with your five outfield slots in a, in a draft champions league or a main event league or something like that, you know, that's where you're going to get a lot of production. You know, you're expecting, you know, power. You're expecting a little speed. You're expecting a decent average from most of those, if not all five of those guys, because, you you know, you really need that um, from, from outfielders because they tend to be uh, not – one-dimensional players you know like from a yeah traditional first baseman you're not expecting to get to get speed and from a traditional shortstop you're not not in this day and age but traditionally you're not expecting as much power and so the idea here is just that you know outfield is where you can make a lot of hay and yeah. you know um, to, and to to that point specifically um if i've addressed steals because again, you know, we don't really know we're getting with Hayes, and I, I don't, I didn't want to argue with your, you know, you projecting him, you know, to take a slide from that 309 he put up last year. If I have steals addressed, there was someone else in this range that I find I am drafting, and it's Mark uh, Kana on the A's. You know, you said you're a you're a big peripheral guy. He has an extremely strong basket of skills um, that I think. It's funny, I'm, I, he's another I'm not quite sure um, why he's being overlooked. It's funny, you know, as we kind of get all these new awesome stats, particularly like StatCast and stuff like that, we have to be careful, right, how we use them and apply them, not to like overweigh them or misuse them and have them misguide us. There has been, you know, a subsequent overuse of StatCast, and that's fine, and that I'm going to use that to my advantage, right? I'm going to know that people are going to do that and then look for the people that fall. But it's, I'm surprised that Kana, who, you know, people fall back on this StatCast homepage and then just look at those kind of meters, and that's not enough for me. You know, it lacks context 
there's a lot of red on his page and that you know is like blood in the water right that's the slurry <laughs> for the for the sharks right that's the chum or whatever it is i'm not much of an outdoorsman um <laughs> but people are people are going after that and yeah. this guy i'm not sure he's he's you know he checks again those that next tier of contextual i don't want to call them subjective boxes but you know he's got a great context uh, he has an everyday role in a very strong lineup. I mean, he's going to be hitting among Crush Davis and Matt Olson and Simeonism up front there getting on base. Uh, Connor's, ex- you know, he has an elite on base percentage. It was almost 400 last year. So for anybody, quick shift, if you're in OBP leagues or point leagues, Connor is a guy who doesn't just get a small bump. He gets a tremendous boost. You know, so he should be on all of your teams if you're doing these fan tracks, best balls, or playing in point leagues. He's a guy you definitely want to earmark because he's putting up that elite 13.5% walk rate. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to make sure I got to Connor because he's a guy I definitely own because there's a lot that I like. I think he's been forgotten. You know, like, meaning I'm probably taking him over Hayes because I think he's a bit more established. And I'm a bit worrisome about the, you know, maybe, you know, Hayes might have a little bit of growing pains coming. Uh, I'll definitely uh, agree, especially in an OBP league. Kanha is a huge value. Um, This is one of the things people just fail to adjust for. I mean, Kanha walks uh, a ton. And like you said, his OBP was in the high, high, high 300s. So um, that is that is definitely six. I mean, we're almost at 400. Yeah, so so Kanha is just a total value in an OBP league, uh, and a player that we are, are actually going to get to in the next round. So I mean, we already covered him, but uh, but but yeah, I think I think the point, uh, you know, with Chu, Hayes, Kanha, you know, even even other outfielders around this range is is know what you're getting and know what your team needs. Um, I am trying to. I tend to get outfielders early, earlier um, or, or later um, because I'm, I, I'm going for a lot of upside at that position. But um, what do you say we get into the next round? And uh, we've already covered him, but I think there's going to be some other interesting uh, people to talk to in, in round 18. Oh, yeah. All right. So let me just uh, – so we, we, we ended it with pick 255, Darren Node. So pick 256, picking up in the next round. We've got Renato Nunez, Mark Kanha. Yandy Diaz, Emilio Pagan, Scott Oberg, Starling Castro, Ryan Yarbrough, Sogo Akiyama, Akiyama, uh, Cesar Hernandez, Wade Davis, Brandon Kintzler, Sam Hilliard, Chris Archer, Aaron Savale, and Joey Votto. Uh, I think, whereas in the last round, I was not finding many targets or avoids, I'm probably going to have some avoids here, but uh, I would love to let my guest go first if you would like. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'm shopping in this aisle. And again, you know, oftentimes it's tied to risk in my team construction, not to keep being so boring about that stuff. But um, you named a couple guys that I, I do find I come down with. So I have found particularly in deeper formats that I am not really satisfied with my MI position. You know, going in, the narrative is that shortstop is extremely deep. I'm not going to argue that it's, you know, it's depth so much as, you know, we're talking MI. So when you have to combine the two of them, I don't think they combine together well. And I think second base is the most shallow position, which when you combine that with the push for shortstops is creating a fall off for middle infielder. 
So I have been finding that I have a bit of Stalin Castro. Um, you know, he after starting in July last year, I mean, he really kind of put on a bit of a show, and he looked like a, you know a player that people were talking about being. Uh, you know, this guy had the shine. He's supposed to be a top 30 player. It just never really. It never really panned out. It's not necessarily too late. He's still in that power window now. Just really quick, from July 1st, in over 300 plate appearances, he had a 313, 344, 565 triple slash. That was a 909 OPS, 252 ISO, 373 WOBA, 134 WRC+. Plus. So he was he was awesome. You know, he was hitting home runs. And, you know, when I, I talk about context, he made perhaps the largest single contextual leap you can make, right? Going from the bum Marlins to the center of the defending champion nationals. Um, you know, there's a lot to like there. I actually saw a little tweet yesterday from Rotoballer, I think, that said he's, he's looking at being the fifth hitter. You know, obviously without Rendon, there's a bit of a black hole. I think there'll be a competition for that spot, and it could very well go to Castro. So if we're talking about the five hitter, you know, it's funny, right? Running themes for me. A lot of time running themes, running themes. Uh, Austin Hayes is going to hit, you know, third or fourth in his lineup. And Mark Connor is probably going to hit fifth in his lineup. Uh, Castro is probably going to hit fifth in his lineup, right? So this deep in drafts, there are still premium lineup positions available on quality teams that even have good park context. So, like, before we get into this whole dart throwing, you know, thing where you're taking guys that need paths to shore playing time. I can offer you shore playing time in a great spot with skilled players. So Castro, I have marked. I definitely have him. And on the pitching side, because I am kind of a batted ball snob, I guess, of sorts. I like Aaron Savale a lot. Um, and I think especially with Clevenger down his spot in the rotation is assured right now. He's going to have plenty of time to do his thing oh, yeah. because, you know, as much, right. As much as I do love, Oh man, I'm not sure there's a basket of peripherals to like any more than this guy, right? He's, he is impossible to barrel just, imp- he's impossible to barrel. I think he might have the best rate in the entire league in the 57 innings that he pitched. You know, like meaning had you set that as a qualifier, um, any qualifier where he met the standard of that parameter, he was possibly the best in the league. 2.4% barrels per BBE and 1.8% barrels per plate appearance. Man, just for like just for reference, it's it's really no, he was number one. So he's number one overall in that metric. Yeah, he doesn't give up any home runs, less than 7% home run to fly ball rate. A lot to like there again at the price, right? The Indians are going to be pretty good. They added a ton in the back end of that bullpen. I believe it's Karinchek and Classe, right? It was the center of that big deal with hands shutting the door, presumably at least on opening day. There's a pretty, another really good context here for a guy who, you know, his ding is the strikeouts. The strikeouts are are not there. But uh, that's not end-all, be-all, right? If you're going after guys that are high strikeout guys, then you should be able to stomach a guy that hopefully is going to be really good um, as far as ratio department. I mean, he just he just doesn't put guys on. He's impossible to barrel. The when he when you do hit it, it's not hard, and he doesn't walk anybody. He only had a seven percent walk rate. So for a young guy, you know, those are really encouraging 
Um, not sure I could, you know, it's going to, this could turn into another Hauser thing. I don't like him as much as Hauser, but I think that, uh, reflects in the 25 or 30 pick, um, difference here. And, and he's another guy. I have a lot, a lot of my team, sadly, um, sadly he was on all of them because at one point this guy was forgotten and going in the four hundreds. Um, other than that, I see Chris Archer's name. I'm going to, I'm going to hard pass Archer. This is coming with the caveat until I do some of my own work. Um, man, I, I got to see it for myself. Similar to like you asked me about Hauser. I am not beyond my own research, right? I'm going to look because I'm starting to see some really smart people talk about him. Well, the thing about Chris Archer for me, and I, I don't think I've drafted him yet, but I, I guess I didn't realize how late he was going. He's he's actually, I think, even crept up to, to get here at pick two almost 270 um but you know he might have even been gone going a little bit later but to me the thing about chris archer is whatever else he will do or not do for you not do well he had a 10.75 strikeouts per nine last year and it's pretty much backed up by his you know sort of perennial 13 percentish swinging strike rate and, you know, low contact that he allows. Now, he had a five-plus ERA for the first time. And, you know, there are reasons to think he, he will have a high ERA going forward. But if I'm in a draft Champions League or something like that, and especially if I took my pocket aces or something early and I have sort of ERA and whip somewhat stabilized, plugging in a guy like Archer who will pretty much, you know, continue a strong uh, pitching staff into the win for strikeouts, the strikeouts category. Uh, I think he's he's a pretty good pick here, and I'm sorry that I haven't drafted him before now. So, you know, I think Archer's pretty interesting. I do think you have to have a plan because he doesn't give you the upside of maybe some of these guys that could really turn in a, a pristine ERA. Just while I'm talking about pitching, um, you know, I, I definitely, like, Savale, I think, only had 57 innings last year. Correct. And, um, so, but, but, I, and, with, you know, with Hauser, even with more innings, I, I do think, you know, we, we have yet to see what these guys are. But I will say one thing for you on that the team context, as you were saying, you know, with, especially with Clevenger down, but really just with the overall pitching situation in Cleveland and the overall pitching situation in Milwaukee, which is a train wreck. Uh, those guys are going to have roles and they should get some run. There's really no reason to see them, you know, uh, getting played around with or, or capped on innings. I think if they're, if they're doing well, uh, they're going to get to, to start, uh, as much as they can because their teams really don't have a choice. So, yeah, hundred percent. Not only that, that, I mean, if, if you're kind of tossing up between these guys, because again, right, they're at the same price and it's a realistic decision that you're going to have to face. I mean, Archer and Savali are literally back-to-back. Oh, man, the pirate context is so poor this year. It is hard <laughs> to find one much worse. And, you know, it's kind of making me, uh, you know, when I was talking about Josh Bell earlier, I'm trying to force myself to say, like, all right, he's he's probably an exception. He might be the only pirate I want anything to do with. You kind of get the feeling with Archer that if he gives up, a, you know, two or three runs. He's not a good one. It's probably yeah. a loss. And yeah. then if he does happen to have, uh, you know, it's just poor, right? If it's a tie game, you're not going to be confident they're going to win it. 
And if it's a, if they're ahead, you're not going to be confident that they're going to keep it. I guess I kind of like Kella. That's more of a price thing also. But the bullpen is not is not very good. Uh, from what well, I understand, they brought in a new pitching coach. Some people are really into that. Until I see something, it, it's hard for me to uh, reconcile <clears throat> those other red flags, really. You know, I'd rather go with the guy, you know, in Cleveland that – is a little less likely to give up five home runs in the game and way more likely to have his bullpen shut the door. Yeah, that's another, <clears throat> excuse me, other other point for team contacts other than just staying in the rotation without issue um, is the is the offensive contacts on the team. So so Cleveland and, and Milwaukee are definitely going to be better offensive contacts than Pittsburgh. Uh Easily, so definitely. Yeah, you gotta consider that. I wouldn't. I don't. I don't like to be a slave to that whatsoever. But again, you know, right? We're down to the very last beads on the scale, right? Those last couple marbles going on that weighted scale, and we have to make a binary decision. It's either A or it's B, right? And a lot of analysts, you could be milk toast and wishy washy, give you the lawyer answer of, well, it depends, which it does, but that's. That's not what we're here for, right? Like I said, we want to be productive and have this be applicable. So when I put myself in those shoes, I work people through my very own process. And that's kind of what it comes down to. The pirates just really, really worry me. They're awful. You know, it's <laughs> it's just, you know, it's awful. We're in an age now where there are a couple teams that all gross and they're really not you know, not really very competitive. You know, losing Tyon really hurt the Pirates, and then they go and ship Marte, and they stunk with him last year. It's hard to imagine. I guess the couple Kevin Newman shares I got, maybe you're going to get a bump towards the top. <laughs> but the Pirates is scary. You know, you, you mentioned that scary context, and I don't think you could really understate it, right? You're, you're married to that context for 162 games, and... More likely than not, it's not going to change for the better, right? They're selling. It might change for the worse. Yeah. Well, let me uh, hit on some other uh, other positions. So um, I really – I have been so, – so at the beginning of this round, we have a 256 Renato Nunez and a 258 Yandy Diaz. I have been getting a ton of Yandy Diaz, but um, you have to be a little concerned about the – about the Tampa, you know, platoon situation. They just have every position covered three times, it seems. So uh, with Renato Nunez, it's it's kind of the opposite. You know, he's, he should have pretty clear run in that Baltimore lineup, and he was great last year. I actually put out a tweet this morning that he out-earned Reese Hoskins last year, and that's more about my sort of disdain for Reese Hoskins' uh you know, basically, I, I feel like he's perennially overvalued a lot more last year than this year, but I still think he's overvalued. But Renato Nunez is, is a pretty decent um, way to go if you're if you're this late at, at first base or corner. Um, and the thing about Yandy to me or Yandy Diaz is that he is a really good hitter, um, and he started to loft the ball last year, and he had 14 home runs in about a half a season. I think 79 games, if I'm remembering correctly. But anyway, the, the point is he uh, was doing really good things and, and was, was a, a super valuable part of your team for while he was healthy last year. And then he got hurt, and he didn't do much after that. So I think you know if you're trying to put together a narrative where you could get a real value here, 
uh, Yandi Diaz is a pretty interesting place to look. But know that there's plenty of risk there, too. But this is, I'm going to move very quickly before I let you respond to one of my avoids here, and that's the last player in the round, Joey Votto. To me, what you're getting with Votto is you have to understand, you have to admit that there's risk there because of what has happened the last couple of seasons. But to me, it's the risk. It's a different kind of risk. It's a skills degradation risk where Yandy Diaz has a playing time risk. But if all goes well, the upside with Joey Votto is, is to me nowhere near what the upside is with Yandy Diaz. So what do you think about these three potential first basemen? Yandy's also third base eligible, but uh, and, and sort of their relative values here. Well, Nunez is certainly a guy I had a ton of early in draft season. And it's funny, one of my, my bases was um, what you mentioned about playing time. I am not just a creator of content, right? I consume it also. And I have been hearing quite a bit about his playing time being in, in jeopardy. That's not to say I've been sold on the argument why. You know, and even if I, I don't necessarily see it, maybe the assumption is would Ryan Mountcastle kind of knock on the door, which I get, but I'm not sure how he's just not an easy swap for Chris Davis. Um, I know they're married to him with the money, but I mean, something's got to give there, especially if Nunez hits, I don't see how it's not him. Um, he, he had some really strong uh, peripherals also, you know, there's some really nice stuff. He's got that great elevation profile also, um, which circling back, to the park factors he'll be seeing in the AL East, you know, focusing on that basket of elevation stats is tremendous, right? So he's below a 33% ground ball rate and above a 46% fly ball rate, which is, I mean, there couldn't be anything more you could ask for, for a guy that's going to play 80, you know, two in Camden and then another uh, nine or 10 in Yankee stadium, you know, and then uh, the same thing to be said for Fenway. Um, Unfortunately, he kind of falls into that category of players also who was going quite a bit later a couple months ago. And now where he's moved, I kind of find to have less, if not any of him, because people are jumping to fill their C, their CI with him. So I do like Nunez. I think his price is being misstated in this ADP. I believe his true ADP is closer to his current min, which is in the 230s. And, you know, at this point, 25 picks makes a big difference, right? It's a difference between a whole wraparound getting him or not. Yandy Diaz, man, I really like. He's on a list of guys that I think I'm going to be burned by when he ends up checking the box that I have unchecked currently, which is what you mentioned before in playing time. I have a very, very hard time drafting Rays. I'm a conservative player by nature, and the format I'm tech, uh you know, really in right now are either draft champions or best balls where you get no in-season uh, fill-ins and management and stuff. So it's it's hard it's hard for me to take take risks. You know, I want to be as certain as possible. I like the dual eligibility, and I think that will help him. But I, I just I have find other people other people want him more than I do. And like I said, I think he's going closer to two thirty. Who was the third? Joey Votto. Oh, dude, he shot. It's a wash. Get out of here, man. No, nah, he <laughs> well, shot. Well, okay. There's, this is a, this too is a much great talent there also. I think you might have missed, you know, when you're mentioning Votto, the other thing is not only is he going through a talent erosion, 
there is a surplus of talent on that roster. You know, the entire baseball world is kind of expecting a trade that hasn't happened yet, right? I mean, uh, you know, Aristides Aquino kind of should be on a starting team, you'd think. He has an option remaining, so possibly he gets sent down. Um, Winker and Senzel. Yeah, listen, all the guys, all their, listen, most and most analysts, and I don't think they're taking a cheap way out. I think they're taking a smart way out by taking a macro view, but I think they're purposely leaving out the micro, right? So the macro view is there's plenty of talent, but they have injury-prone guys. That will work itself out, which I do believe is true. However, you can't operate on opening day under that assumption. No one is going to start, you know, a team with guys on, on the bench. So I, I think there's too much talent there to think that, one, Joey Votto is not going to be the guy to get injured. He's, you know, uh, older than 36. He already had his 36 and a half. Ah, uh, man, it's a really tough sell for me on Votto. I just. Well, I think this is an interesting opportunity to talk about just a, a valuation concept. For me, uh, you know, the, the, the idea is I compared skills wise Yandy Diaz to Joey Votto. And I said, you know what? I, there's playing time risks here, but I'm willing to take the chance on Yandy Diaz. However, and this is the most important point. You don't have to pick between these two guys. <laughs> there is a whole draft of other value. And, um, you know, without even thinking about Renato Nunez here, um, you can certainly make your plan to just not have uh, a first base or, you know, for Yandy third base in this round. And and that's an important thing to go through. And I, and I understand, you know, especially in um, draft champions leagues, uh, really 15 teamers in general. I, I, I certainly understand your, um, your almost, um, you know, preference is not the strong enough word, but for, for players with guaranteed playing time, because I think that's a very smart way to play. But like you said, um, you know, sort of related to the Cincinnati situation, you have to look at the micro too. And I think, you know, uh, jumping to a completely different round here. I think, you know, a player like Senzel is, is good enough and has enough potential that they're going to, somebody is going to want to get him into a lineup um, more regularly. And so uh, you got to think about things like that too, but that's, um, that's just an interesting little, little spot for these three guys with very different situations. And um, while we know Renato Nunez is going to have a lower batting average, I think he's an interesting way to look here. Let me just talk a little bit about the closers going here or, or potential closers or relief pitchers or whatever you want to call them, because I think it's very fascinating. You've got Emilio Pergan still going here. And remember, John, we sorted from February 10th on. I just looked. His trade went down on February 9th. So why in the world would Emilio Pagan still be going even as even high as 259? People are not paying I mean, attention <laughs> or or they are perceiving scarcity in saves, which I believe is is correct. And perhaps they're trying to build on the San Diego stable. You know, uh, it, it's a it's a tough sell, man. The, the, the closer market in general is hitting that point now in the offseason where it's becoming almost impossible to navigate. And if I could show everybody, you know, my own flaws I'm in a draft champions now that I got 
caught um, somewhat with my pants down as far as closers go. You know, I was able to grab uh, Robles in a, in a decent spot. But now it's kind of hit the point where, man, it, it feels like opening day is right around the corner because all of these closers are, are gone so fast. We're talking by like, I want to say in a 15-team league, this is legitimate, by a 15-team league, by the time you get through the 11th round, the very last closers that have certain roles are gone. Just about um, when I, so was, that's I was about, looking at this just the other day, and, and the last closer that I am comfortable having uh, in, in that role, and, and I'm going to caveat this after I give his name, is, is Mark Melanson. And the only reason, and, and that's oh. uh, pick, pick 196. And I'm not entirely comfortable with Mark Melanson. Um, the thing about him is he is the last named closer I believe that's going, but just a few picks before you just go eight picks earlier. Uh, in, in what would this be round, uh, 12 or 13, uh, Joe Jimenez is going at pick 188. I would much rather have him because I think oh, there's yeah. a lot less chance that he's going to lose his job. So, so right there around the 13th round is the end of closers with roles, not named Wade Davis. And that's uh, other than Pagan here, you have Scott well, he, Oberg. If I could sorry, cut you off real quick, he was, yeah. He was gone already. So the market is, is hip to Jimenez. Uh, he was already gone, you know, at that at that pick that I made. But I was talking about, I was looking for a set, you know, especially in these kind of overall competitions or, you know, draft and holds. you got to have two legitimate closers, and I don't. You know, I don't. But I wasn't going to reach for Melanson. And uh, this may be something in a month or two or three. Uh, it turns out you were completely right. I could not reconcile that pick for the amount of talent uh, in bullpen, people are drafting. People are drafting three different people for those saves. Well, and you're so talking about a draft Champions League, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In so a, this, in so, a roto, so it's a little different a with league, me. I want to be clear. In a roto league, if I get caught with only one close, first of all, I wouldn't be taking a closer in the ninth round in a roto league. I'm gonna get two guys later, I might get one guy on the bubble. Like maybe I want to come down with one guy in that, like Jimenez kind of guy. And other than that, I'm going to catch him at the end. I'm going to pick him up off the waiver wire. It's a strength in my own game. I feel like, cause I've done it year over year last year, just to be quick with it last year, I thought I had a good process. I was looking for kind of forgotten guys with good skill sets on winning teams. So I ended up with uh, Pedro Strop on the Cubs and the combination of Ryan Brazier and, Barnes on the Red Sox, right? Thinking, hey, man, if I get the closer on two really good teams, I could get 80-something saves, and this is like in the 20th round or beyond last year. So I thought I was the smartest guy in the room. Fast forward to my failure, I ended up getting nothing from either one of those guys. Fast forward to my success, I ended up at least in the middle of every single save category in very tough roto leagues, including TGFBI, that had players playing very hard trying to win the overall so uh, during the season, you know, I had, man, almost need me. That almost sounds too good to be true. I picked up uh, Hendricks before he had the role. I had Oberg. I had Nick Anderson. Uh, I had Luke Jackson. I had Emilio Pagan, just to name a few guys. that, And I can screenshot the proof for anybody that wants to call me a bean shooter. I don't think I paid more than $15 in a $1,000 budget for any of those guys. So wow. not to be too elliptical with it, but remember, it is format dependent, and again, we're value-driven. So 
you give me that set of information, I don't need saves in standalone roto leagues. I'm passing totally. I do like to focus on the overalls because it gives you a good sense of the stress in a market, right? That's your best way to to play almost is at the highest speed with the most pressure because it'll give you a great sense of what's going on out there. And I just punted. I just said, forget it. I have one guy. I have a couple guys in mind. Uh, we're probably not going to get to today because they're much deeper in the pool, but I'm going to have to find my saves much later. Lesson learned for people who are obsessed with competing in overalls. You better get your second guy before the 12th round. That's a lesson for me, man. <laughs> and that, yeah. that seems like a lot of draft. Doesn't that seem like a lot of draft capital to spend on saves? Two guys in your top 11 or 12? Uh, 12 is not even good. I'm looking at the 12 right now. You didn't get anybody in 12. You didn't get anybody. You got Will Smith if you wanted. That's not great. You don't. He's not even starting as the closer. 100% agree. Um, and also, you know, like, and, and so we're talking about the 18th round here, and you've mm-hmm. got Pagan, who's not a closer. You've got Kinsler, who who might not be the closer for a bad team anyway. I don't think anyway. he's going to close. And if we want a quick note, I do believe the Marlins are a professional baseball team. I also believe that they will win some games. And within those games, I think there will be saves. I believe the Marlins are, you know, markedly better than you were last year, uh, particularly in that bullpen also, I I don't think it's going to be Kinsler that gets the saves, but what I was getting at is I think there are saves to be had. So if you do find yourself in my position, I believe they're going to go to Ryan Stanek, and if he doesn't get it, believe it or not, I think it's going to be Jose Urania. But that's how deep you got to dive for saves if you lose out. You know, Kinsler, I don't, I, Kinsler for me, I think his being drafted here is just people seeing the news and being desperate. I don't think he's going to close. I don't think he's going to close games. Yeah, and to your earlier point about draft, you know, spending the even you know eleventh or twelfth round draft capital on, on closers, that doesn't mean, and I don't think you were implying that you get a closer here in round eighteen if it's not even the guy. So like Pagan and Brendan Kinsler are not where we are telling you to go. Now, what I do want you to answer for me is interestingly we have wade davis and scott oberg also both yeah. going in the 18th round and we you know we can understand a little bit why they're overlapping here because wade davis was not named until you know somewhere within the last two weeks and so they're you know he's on the way up oberg's on the way down but let's just say for argument's sake that you could get both of them right here would it be worth it to you to grab one in the 17th and one in the 18th so you have uh you have sort of uh likely chance of getting the all the saves in Colorado well I, I do think if you have them both I think you're going to get the saves in Colorado I am not I'm not ballsy enough to try and predict which one right now um, again to this idea of expiring ADP and sharp market movements man Davis is on a tremendous upswing his 268 ADP is a falsity to give you an example he has a 179 min and a 428 max. Expect the 178 min, unfortunately. Wow. Oberg has a 207 min and a 321 max. Expect that his 260 is probably a little more true as people hear that he won't be starting with the job. The value here is probably with Oberg. There's a chance Davis is atrocious. I know they said they're going to stick with him. How many blown saves are they going you know, to to absorb. 
Let's say, I'm not sure. Oberg is clearly the better pitcher in my eyes, and I think he will finish with the saves. The question in front of you is, are you willing to use back-to-back turn picks? Because I believe that's the only way you're really going to get both of these guys is to kind of jump. Because, man, I'm, I, I have to preface this. I'm not going to 179 for Wade Davis. I absolutely refuse to. And that's what I did in this current draft I was referring to, where although I think I made a mistake not getting a second guy, I don't think part of that mistake was not including Wade Davis in my roster. I'm not interested in overpaying for trash. I'd much rather slightly overpay relatively for guys I think might step into roles later on, you know, like maybe let's say like a, and even this conversation is a tough one. Maybe that's like a Ginkle or a Batansis. You know, like somebody you think might slide up in those DMs and get the job. But it's definitely tough sledding, man. It's very, very tough sledding. And listen, other people, I'm not, you know, I'm not that smart. I was the only person to figure it out. Everyone else has figured it out already. And that's why you have to have two closers in the first 11 rounds. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. And it's a good point about Wade Davis moving up. I think you – know, I'm not going to want Wade Davis there, like you said, in the 12th round or whatever. Um, I'm not sure I wanted him at 260, let alone 180. Exactly, exactly. So, so, so make sure you get somebody you do want before that, and then you know you're you're. It's not going to be a good strategy to take Wade Davis in the 12th and then uh, Oberg in the 20th or whatever. No, no, you have to hope Oberg falls into this range where you can easily rationalize using him. Hey, because uh, with us not knowing what the ball is going to be like and also knowing how tough some pitching matchups can be, right? You, there are some teams you just never want to pitch in Colorado, which is funny as a Rockies pitcher, but I mean, as a starter and you don't want to pitch in Yankee Stadium. Sometimes I deploy, you know, levers uh, to sustain ratios for a week here or there at a time. Gotcha. Um, one guy I definitely wanted to talk about here is Sam Hilliard. Um, he has moved up a lot. He was going, you know, after pick 300 and then right around there. And then the, you know, 19th, 18th round. Um, well, this is the 18th round. So he's moved all the way up to the 18th um, and, and may move further. Uh, what are your feelings about Sam Hilliard now? I, I love the the upside, but I'm a little concerned. You know, I just I hate Rockies, man. I, I just want to stay away from them. I'm worried about the playing time. Um, that said, Sam Hilliard is a really interesting guy to dream on 30 home run, you know, 15 or 20 stolen base upside. If he did ever get full playing time, it's just, I cannot count on it at all. Well, right now he's penciled in as the everyday left fielder. Um, or at least, at least against righties, I guess, which is the majority of times, but he's penciled into the seventh spot. And, uh, you know, that's not a prime spot and they have a couple guys behind him too right so you touched on the main thing for me again my running themes are process based so that's why they're going to keep surfacing i don't want to mess with this situation i really don't want anything to do with the playing time concerns on such a young guy i feel the market is chasing the small sample and what is a you know pre-established track record of speed in the minor leagues so if somebody were coming at me with the argument that hey this is really my late stolen base dart then you've sold me almost immediately 
if you're coming at me with, well, we had a 1,000 OPS in 27 games last year, that I care a lot less about. You know, his uh, 407 Woba and a small cup of coffee. Um, Hilliard, I have found, particularly is effective in pairs, right? So the way that I mentioned drafting Oberg and Davis in a pair, but I was kind of holding my nose like this kind of stinks. Hilliard, I have on a lot of my preseason teams already. Sadly, he was a lot cheaper two months ago, and he was going like into the back end of the 300s. So I had identified the Rockies outfield as a really good place to find some correlative picks that could be impactful throughout the year, dot, 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 if you were to package them. Oh, man, who's out there? Uh, Garrett Hampson is lurking. Ian Desmond is lurking. Raymel Tapia is lurking. That's a lot of talent, and that's a couple of guys that would be starters on probably half of the teams in the major leagues. Why do we say this? Hampson's a righty. Desmond is a righty. We could see a lot of platooning, right? Hilliard, Hilliard not only bats left, but against right-handed pitchers, the Rockies are scheduled at least to throw seven, uh, I'm sorry, six lefties. So they're really, really, really stacked either way, you know, against either pitcher. So they're really built for platoons. And uh, in case anyone hasn't been keeping score, the home run environment at Coors is amazing. So these are these extra boxes that I'm looking at, and they're scaring me. Because the only way I want any part of the Rockies outfield is when I was able to pair and package these guys late in the three and four hundreds. At the price, I am off totally. I will have zero Hilliard. I could tell you right now, unless they came out and said, we are determined to get this young man 600 plate appearances, that I don't think you could touch him. Speaking of those plate appearances, there is not a major projection system besides Zips. And in my opinion, they've had a couple anomalies, and they certainly stick out here. Of five projection systems, four of them have Hilliard for no more than 364 plate appearances. You can't pay this kind of draft capital, draft capital, draft capital for a guy who's not scheduled to play every single day. There is a guy, man. Oh, it's the second time I'm going to mention him. Can I can I stretch you to 288, or do I have to wait? Because if we stretch no, you to 288, uh, abso- I'm going to answer why why I'm so cold, why I am so absolutely cold on all of these outfielders that we've been talking about, and it's because of one of my favorites. I've been talking about this guy all offseason, even with the little boost he's getting right now. I still think he's too low. I can't imagine taking him over almost any of the guys we've talked about. I've been debating if I want him more than Austin Hayes. Luckily, I've been able to kind of get them both still because of the, you know, spacing in their picks. And it's Trent Grisham on the Padres. Um, I understood some of the possible playing time concerns. To me, that was baked into the price when he was going in the 400s. Now he's not going in the 400s, but he got, in my opinion at least, what's a pretty good bump in one of those contextual boxes. The Padres went and shipped um, Manuel Margot. So where we had like a kind of a crowded situation, to me that says they traded for this kid. He's going to play every single day. So that's box number one every single day. Box number two is the context. That lineup is extremely strong. 
And if I'm not mistaken, he is projected to hit smack in the middle of it. That is correct. Trent Grisham is scheduled to play every single day in center field and bat in the five hole. Again, another re-emerging, you know, part of my process. Premier spots in the lineup on good teams. I almost don't understand why it's available so late. Uh, you know, just from a strategic point of view, I'm not sure why people are taking part-time players or guys that have a lot more warts and worries than uh, Grisham. I kind of mentioned, you know, the speed, and uh, that's there also. I don't think he's going to break the books, but all the projection systems happen for, like, you know, anywhere between, like, seven and ten steals, which is re- which is really nice. There's also, you know, a pop for some more, because this is a guy, he stole 37 bags in 2017. So not a lot of people ever do something like that, right? We're not that far removed. He's only 23 years old. If you consider stolen bases as a skill, as I do— I believe the foot speed is there, if I'm not wrong. Man, I think Grisham has like a 97th percentile foot speed um, or better, right? Obviously, there's not a lot of room to be better. Oh, it's 93rd. So don't ding me too bad. I'm missing. So the speed is there. The youth is there. A bit of a track record for stolen bases. So I'm trying to pitch you an argument for stolen base upside. I want to point out another blind spot people have with players. Okay, so the way that I mentioned... People perhaps chasing, oh, and and you did also, perhaps chasing those small cups of tea from, you know, Austin Hayes and Hilliard. We had the opposite from Grisham. He was very bad in a very limited sample set. 51 games, 183 plate appearances. He was very bad. 200, no, about 231. His WRC plus was only 92. He was poor, which is fine. It's not great. But if you live in a value-based world, maybe that's the best thing that could have happened for guys that, you know, want to get Grisham. The blind spot I was referring to is not only about overweighing these small samples. Um, it's about going back and looking at guys that cross levels. So Grisham was in three different levels last year. He hit 35 bombs, 95 runs, 95 ribbies, and 12 steals. That's amazing i don't know like i don't it's funny how the market presents you with these opportunities that just leave you scratching your head even with all the extremely sharp players trust me i am not trying to make myself into the smartest guy in the room it's it's far from it it's probably closer to the opposite but i have a process and those process the processes they do highlight outliers so for me this is a clear outlier of a guy who's got the youth there's a pathway to steals there's a pathway to a ton of power playing every day on a really, really, really good team that's making a push to improve across the board. Not quite sure why he's going behind part-timers. And he's also, like I said, the reason that I was kind of sucking my teeth on a lot of these other outfielders. I'm like, ah, he's got holes. He's got holes. He doesn't have a pathway. Then I get to Grisham, and I'm like, ding, 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 ding. So, you know, that's the guy I want. Give me all the Grisham. Hmm. Well, I, I have not had the same take on him. I'm, I'm, trying to uh, think about if I <laughs> if I want to push back or change my tune here. So well, I'm, I'm I, open to I'm open to the holes. I actually did a uh, a piece on him. He's uh, that'll be out for the athletic. And uh, like I get it, you know, I am not the type to just give one sided. There are certainly some some problems, but I think there can be wiped away with the small sample argument, you know, and I, I hope maybe I'm not, maybe I'm being overly apologetic. And if you think so, that's, 
fine. You could be right. You know. Well, let's talk about it for a minute. So, like, so you know, one thing is the batting average. I think it's it's pretty much uh, uh, probably a net negative. He, I'm trying to pull up uh, Baseball Reference real quick to see what his uh, batting average was in the minors overall. But I'm I'm looking at the recent he's like reduction. A two, he's like a 260, right? He's like a 260 guy, I think. Uh, but it kind of moved. It kind of moved around. And again, back to changing levels. I'm always weary of the first move up. But then, like, it's just weird. Yeah, you know what? If if you're going to ding him for his anomalistic uh, Major League Baseball stint, maybe he gets the opposite. When he went to AAA, he bat 381 in his well, 158 that, plate appearances. So, yeah. obviously, like, that sticks out. We're not expecting that. But I see uh, bits of 230s, but he was a, you know, 300 hitter when he first started. Uh, single A, double yeah, These stats are hard to be wed to. I'm well, probably so, with the projection systems on 240s. I, I think I'm with them there. Okay, uh, you know that there's there's some concern even there for me because in 2017 in 133 games he hit 223 at, at single A and in two in 2018 in 107 games he hit 233 at double A uh, he did you know maybe there was a tangible change in 2019 because he hit 254 at double A and then 381 in just 34 games at triple A. So, so maybe something changed with Trent Grisham, although it didn't carry through, you know, to the majors cause he hit 231 in, in 51 games. So uh, I'll go with the 240 there. I, I think there's some risk that, you know, there, there might be some growing pains there with him uh, just becoming a, a solid, you know, average uh, major league hitter. I think he might be a little, Below average right now, but you like you mentioned he's 23, so there's room to grow. The other thing, oh, obviously, absolutely. the other thing, obviously, with your with your process that that I totally agree with evaluating his playing time, and so the Margot thing is a huge positive. There's still there's still Will Myers lurking, and you know the thing with Will Myers is he cannot hit the breaking pitch anymore. Like I, I don't know, he was never great at it, but now it's it's become a huge liability for him. I'm I'm trying to pull up what he had last year, but you know he he struggled to hit 240. <laughs> he actually came out at 239 for the year last year, and so there's certainly no argument to be made for Will Myers here um, as a batting average boon for the team if Trent Grisham struggles. I just wonder if there's going to be you know roster resource kind of has it as a platoon situation with Grisham, Franchi Cordero, and Will Myers, and even Juan Lagares. Although I, I I don't know how much I believe in that. I think um, I might go to uh, right that yeah speaks to me pushing back I guess on the projections in their in the playing time I I thought I took the open the moving of Margot as really an opening for him to get every chance do I think they're gonna you know uh, absorb 700 atrocious plate appearances no I do not um, one thing I'd like to highlight uh, about him because again it's something I I will look at in this small sample set. Especially with young players, I'm always very interested in their disciplinary basket of skills because there are certain aspects of that that I think carry over and not to overuse the word, but I think are skills, right? So um, coming up, especially for a guy who's, you know, uh, got really uh, some power, right? Grisham is somebody that, you know, people are expecting to do some um, damage with the stick, definitely uh, double digit home runs. And his chase rate is nine and a half percentage points below average. That is really impressive to ma- to maintain a, a 22% O swing throughout a sustained slump. 
So, like, I, I don't know if that's me, again, me kind of being too apologetic for him, but I really, really like that. I really, really like that he's not chasing. He didn't let that um, affect him. And he combined the low chase rate with a, a better-than-average contact rate. It's like three ticks better than the league. His swinging strike rate is three ticks lower than the league. So I like I like all of that, all of that stuff. Um, I guess when you when you look at the other part of the discipline basket, which of course is walks and strikeouts, um, they were pretty much the worst of his recent professional career. You're not trying not to go too far into single A ball. Um, I think again because they are skill sets, and he had carried a more consistent profile. You know, he was more his K percentage for man, let's say like a man a. Thousand plate appearances or so was below 20%. So I like to think like maybe that's where he goes, opposed to the 26 from last year. He was also a very big walk guy, right? Like I said, the chase rate is a skill. His walk rate is generally 15% or better, which is awesome. He came up and maintained an 11% walk rate, which again for the pros is fantastic. For a rookie is better than that. And if we see that solid 15, I think we definitely have some growth here. So I think the walk rate is going to come back up with the K rate going back down. I think that translates obviously into a higher on base percentage. Um, You know, those are all things I really like to stress, but I probably have to leave it there. And then being objective, man, it didn't look good. It didn't look good. The batted ball data is just not good. Um, the elevation basket is good. So that's encouraging, right? A better than 43% fly ball, a lower than 38% ground ball. Those are really good things. It ends there. Uh, hard hit rates in the 30s. Uh, his expected Wobacom was only 340. His barrel rates are below 6%. His expected barrel rate was only a half a tick higher, a little closer to 6. Uh, it's not good. Um, again, I like the elevation. You know, 16-degree launch angle is something we could definitely work with if he can start barreling up a little better. You know, so, I, you know, like I said, I get, I get the holes. He's not a perfect player. But particularly with the steel upside that I'm kind of seeing and it being very difficult, you know, to maybe get, even if you want to be, I'll be uh, conservative on the home runs. No system has him lower than 15 in 500 plate appearances. So I think if he gets 600, I think 15 is very low. So if he gets the steals I'm talking about, you know, you could be getting 1825 from this guy or 1822, 1520, really, really late. And that's what I'm into about him. So, you know, again, I, I like talking about the process and, you know, I think you're, you're looking at some good things. I want to go back to something I said when we were talking about round 17 outfielders. And so, you know, we talked about Chu and Hayes. And then in 18, you know, we talked about uh, Hilliard. And, and, and that's when you brought up Trent Grisham. To me, this is just not where I'm, I'm playing in outfield. Because so first of all, some of your, your big, big value that you're going to get, some of your 40 home run guys early, some of your, you know, high batting average uh, home, you know, speed and power guys you're going to get early um, are going to be outfielders. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of teams where I have 
been very tempted or even just gone and done it and gotten four or sometimes even all five of my starting outfielders in the first, you know, 11 to 12 rounds, which wow. is, a, which is a lot, but yeah. I'm talking about players that I really love. Um, so obviously, you know, if I get an early pick, I'm, I'm prone to take Acuna, Trout or Yelich, but then in the, in the next several rounds, I'm taking, um, <clears throat> let's, let's even skip down a few rounds. Uh, well, there there are guys in the third, second or third round, but let's skip on down to round five or six. You know, I'm looking at um, <clears throat> Ozuna, Jorge Soler, uh, Ramon Laureano, uh, Fam, uh, Puig's dropping yeah. even to to further rounds down. Guys um, that do everything. Yeah, I get it. Guys that do everything. Yeah, certainly. Eddie Rosario, Nicholas Castellanos, even the four category guys like those two are going to get you just such good things in four categories. And I, I, those guys are going in like the seventh round. And then you, you have your Mancini's, your, uh, if you, you know, there are plenty of other guys in here like Michael Brantley. And then skipping on down, I'm getting a lot of J.D. Davis, and he's third base eligible too. Uh, and some other stabs like Mel Reyes and Kyle Schwarber in the 10th and 11th round that I think are going to, I say stabs, I, I really like those guys to, to return value um, of a much higher round. And so <clears throat> if I have four or potentially even five outfielders, by the time we get to these, you know, mid-teens to late-teens rounds, I'm kind of waiting um, and skipping the, the, the guys that we've talked about in this episode, and I'm just taking um, sort of more flyery type guys later, like Kevin Kiermeyer, Dylan Carlson, hoping that he'll, you know, get, get the playing time. Or whatever, and that's what I was doing with Hilliard, like you said earlier, when he was going in the 300s. And so, um, when we're talking, and obviously it's a little silly to talk about 18th round as a as a super valuable tra- draft, um, you know, capital, because it's not. It's it's you know you're you're not you're not getting a, a full player there. But um, the last guy that I wanted to talk about here is actually kind of an interesting example of this point, um, because it's Cesar Hernandez. And Cesar or Cesar, however you say his name, to me is is what I what what kind of goes along with our um, process here. He should be a guy who's in the lineup every day. He's not fantabulous, and that's why you're getting him in the 18th round. But if depending on how I built the team, if I've taken some of those outfielders earlier, and I've got I've got a buildup of of upside and uh, speed and power, and I just need a second baseman or probably a court, uh, hopefully a middle infielder at this point that I can plug in for counting stats and a little speed. Um, Cesar Hernandez seems to fit the bill sometimes. And, and you know, it's like the opposite of a sexy pick, but to me, I, I, we, we've talked about sort of the concept of knowing what, what we're getting out of a player and, and a player that's going to have secure playing time, um, you, you know, you, people underestimate the value of runs and RBIs in, in, in leagues. And, and so a guy who's going to be in the lineup is going to get you those counting stats that you need. And um, as, as boring as it is, I feel like Cesar Hernandez is a guy who you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a 270-ish average. You're going to get, you know, not many home runs. So you got to make sure your power is in a sufficient, uh, is sufficiently built up so you can afford to take him. But uh, the steals you're going to get double digits with yeah. with upside there, 
and and you're going to get uh, good runs and and a guy who won't hurt you in RBIs. So um, that is tying a lot of things together there for me. But uh, that would be my my sort of target here, uh, and and it all goes back to the concept we started with, where you know player evaluation is important, but the context of of building your team. Well, you know, it's probably not going to come as much of a surprise for all the reasons you laid out that yeah that he's he's my clear fallback, you know for for MI absolutely you know that's a guy. For all the reasons you named, you know what I'm saying. You're, you know, we're aligned as far as, uh, you know, process. the strategic thinking, right, right. The process is aligned there, and you know, uh, steals. You mentioned steals are hard, and a guy that can give you double digits, you know, he's given you, you know, he's gone up as high as 19. I know he's 20 years, uh, 29 years old, so that might might taper off a bit. But I even like the projected 11s and 12s. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm into that stuff, you know. And if you can get 11 and 11 from a guy that's going to hit 270 and play every day. I think the projection systems might be a touch low on his counting stats. They only have him adding up to like 110 or 120. And I know he's not like a big bruiser, but I'm kind of high on the lineup. So I might disagree with the counting stats. And again, if you do disagree with the counting stats, it's even more reason to like him. Yeah, I love that. It it depends which one you look at, but I, I agree with you. I think they're, I think they're sort of basing RBIs. They're all pretty low uh, on the fact that he's not going to hit many home runs. And I agree with that. But, you know, when you're in the lineup every day and you're hitting singles and doubles, those things add up too. And it's going to be a pretty decent lineup. I mean, so yeah. I, I, well, in between in between Fran Mill Reyes and Domingo Santana, there should be some long balls. <laughs> you know, there should be a lot of damage being done. It's not a bad lineup. That's very good to be that deep, you know? So exactly. like, I, like you're saying, if the guy – if if Fernandez is going to be uh, – you know, a double guy. Remember, last year he had 31 doubles. Right. So 31 doubles in front of Domingo Santana could be, you know, should be should be runs. Uh, like I said, I'm just a little bit lower. I'm not expecting 100 100 by any means. But like, I don't know, 50 54 seems a bit low for me. You know, and I, like I said, I just I just think I'm a little bit higher than 120 combined ruby runs. I totally agree. Since since we we've you know, we've been going for a while. We've made it through round 17 and 18. I want to do something that you mentioned uh, before we started, and that's I want to look back at these two rounds and I want to kind of look at the positions we've been talking about. Um, you threw out several pitchers that you like, um, starting pitchers. We kind of covered the relief pitchers and said we're not playing in this range. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, the only catcher we really discussed was uh, Yadier Molina. And, you know, catchers just – uh, I tend not to spend, want to spend too much time there because I think it just depends what you've taken earlier. Like you said, if you've taken a, a top catcher, you're probably waiting late to get your second win. Um, there's different ways to play it, but you know, we, we, I'm not I'm not targeting Molina to to the extent that I'm avoiding earlier catchers. Um, and then it's really interesting what we've talked about. Other than that, so other than than Yandy Diaz, who I think we're kind of split on. We really haven't mentioned um, many third basemen, and of course, you know you're, you're kind of liable to play him at at first base. Um, you you actually did mention Starlin Castro, but again, you're liable to play him at second base, not third. So, the, um, so it's interesting to me. I, you know, we there are a couple of other third base eligible guys uh, that were going here, and I'm, I'm just 
frantically scrolling up and down to try to figure out who. It's a really um, tough but, spot. Third, third base also, uh, but it, you know, having mean, done so many drafts, it, it runs out. Like, you can find yourself in a position. And, and I'd like to – I think I want to point out the reason why is so many of them – so many of them this year are multi-eligible guys – that whether it's people targeting that eligibility or just needing them to fill other positions, it's put a big stress on it, right? Between Bregman, LeMahieu, Bryant, Machado, Muncy, McNeil, Mustakis, Edmund, Gurriel, Escobar, Kingery, J.D. Davis, McMahon, Dozier, and Brian Anderson, John Birdie, Yandy Diaz, Stalin Castro, Tommy LaStella are all multi-eligible. I feel like I just read every single third baseman. It would have been easier to read the ones that aren't. So I feel that that kind of flexibility is putting a major stress on it. And um, that's another one, man. I have, I've had to scratch for third base playing time in certain drafts. Well, and let's also uh, talk about how strong the position is up top. I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think that's the, that's the sort of the interesting thing we're seeing here in 17 and 18 is that we've, we've hit the end of the, the, we've hit the cliff basically we've fallen off the cliff and you know before before around 17 there's there's no third baseman going uh i don't think at all in round uh 16 and then you have john birdie who i'm not a big fan of but before that Gio Arshella, brian anderson hunter dozier i'm not a fan of ryan mcmahon but jd davis justin turner scott kingery you're you're looking at some really good players and some really great upside and some solid playing time just a few rounds earlier. And so it's, it's pretty interesting to think about how you're going to craft your third base strategy. And I think what we've seen here is that if you haven't figured it out by before round 16, you're in trouble. So yeah, no, that's, agree. that's an excellent point. So that's third base. And I, you know, I kind of feel the same about first. I think, you know, we, we both sort of, uh, you know, we're interested in Nunez, uh, possibly not at this price uh we both kind of uh you know are off on on uh, vado you know i think um i think uh yandy diaz is, is super interesting but you know maybe not at this price and there are not a lot of other first basemen going in this range you know i'm i'm, I'm not big on michael michael chavis i don't know if you are but like it's well i i've just and i'm not crazy about him i just have ended up with some because of you know the price and just like the the absolute need, it uh it dries up it really dries up fast you know it really dries up fast and if, yeah. you, if you're going if you're looking to punt back even further I think you have to end up on Seager I think you're shooting the moon with Shaw and you know there's one guy particularly I've, I've covered and written about that I do like but we, I got to see him in spring training first it's Matt Carpenter you know he's further back than we're talking about now but. You know, if Carpenter gets into a game and his back looks healthy and he – not like I care about spring training home runs. I do care about him swinging at full speed, right? So, you know well, – you're, So you're talking, about, you're talking about third base again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were you saying, first? Uh, so, sorry, yeah, I had, I had sort of switched to first. Oh, I'm no, sorry. That... You did. You know, you said Nunez again, and I was – you know what? I had all the multi-eligible guys brought up. Well, and it, it, it well you bring up a good point, though, and, and that's and that's the guys later, and you got to look at that, too. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, sorry, sorry, I really... sorry. To get back to first, man, it might be just as bad because a guy who I liked in Garrett Cooper, now the playing time door is starting to shut. A guy who I liked in Nate Lowe, again, that's a perfect example of Ray's playing time door being shut. 
Uh, Evan White, people are going after because playing time will be there. I'm not sure how much else is there. It's a, it's tough sledding at this point. I've kind of ended up, it, this is me, particularly if my CI is empty and we're all the way back there, uh, it's probably Jesus Aguilar for me. And that's kind of scary thought. And the interesting thing is uh, between Renato Nunez and uh, the next couple guys who are going, which would be Howie Kendrick, Aguilar, and Nate Lowe, who you you mentioned, uh, Renato Nunez is going, like we said, you know, in the 18th round. Howie Kendrick and Jesus Aguilar picked 374 and 381. <laughs> so there, there is a wasteland. Uh, yeah, that's some drop-off, right? So, yeah. So, so you really got to think about that. And then um, – and, I, you know, I, I may have sorted this differently because I pulled up just first base. But still, that's a huge drop, between, you know, almost a 100-pick drop there. And then, again, if you look earlier than this, um, you, the, to me, the value is so much better. So you can get just a, a few rounds earlier. You can get – I'm not crazy about Eric Hosmer, but I'd rather plug him in than a guy like uh, Joey Votto, you know. I, I oh, that's steady not Eddie. even close. Yeah, see, that's not even close. <clears throat> right, agreed. That's not uh, even close. And then, but, you know, CJ Cron is an interesting target a few rounds earlier. So I, I certainly think uh, even if you're waiting on first base, you don't need to wait this far. Yeah, I, um, I've been finding for me, um, I'm trying to get my 1B. Well, I like those guys if I can get them in a CI spot. Like, to me, if you get Cron in your CI you had a very good draft from the from that perspective. I've been trying to come down with at very least Luke Voigt, who looks healthy, and I think his numbers are are especially um, health driven. You know, that's like a big thing, right? People kind of go back and look at the the player card um, from 2019, and you kind of see a little mush mosh and he says, ah, back to who he was or like a sophomore slump or whatever kind of narrative based things people are going to get to. Let me, let me just do a little bit on, on Voight. Cause I was looking at this the other day. So before he got hurt on June 29th, uh, is this 350 plate appearances? He had 17 bombs, 103 ribbies plus runs, triple slash of 280, 393, 509, a 381 Woba and a 140 WRC plus 13.7% barrel rate. He was phenomenal. And he picked up right where he left off after Luke Voigt got hurt. He had 161 plate appearances. He hit four home runs, 31 ribbies and runs and had a 228, 348, 368 triple slash. That was a 315 Woba. It was really bad. So he's a guy that was a tale of two seasons that was, you know, specifically revolving around an injury. So I'd like to point out, you know, as well, like everyone's drafting and looking for info, give I'm all over Voight. He, I mean, is going way too late. I like him. I like him apples to apples better than I like guys going, you know, 60 picks earlier. I think Luke Voigt could outperform Hoskins and Santana and Yuri Gurriel, especially Gurriel, easily 55 picks later. I love that call out. So yeah, I think just in general with first base, you're 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 certainly going to want to go earlier for first, but even for corner, like this is this is probably not the round the range to play in in my opinion. You you want to just, you know, wait for, you know, if you get Howie Kendrick, obviously you're not going to get uh, 600 plate appearances. If you get Evan White, you're taking a chance, but again, these are 75 to 100 picks later. So I, I think that's 
if, if you're if you're punting, if you're waiting, I think that's that's the way to go. So again, it's interesting to see what's available here in the uh, 17th and 18th round and what's not. We named a couple second basemen. So you you named Starlin Castro. I named Cesar Hernandez. I think both you know both of them and and you know, potentially others around here are reasonable ways to go, especially at middle infield. Um, and so. Uh, so maybe, maybe that's something you can find here. What I, I want to kind of scoot past that because what I thought was even more interesting was, I don't think we, um, named a single shortstop in this range. Uh, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm seeing. So no, no one. I love that you're, uh, you're kind of verbalizing a lot of my late frustrations here. And I hope people are getting the takeaway from it that, if you start to package together all of these things that we're talking about with shortages, I think where you probably end up is, and this is where I didn't want to disagree with you talking about getting your outfielders early. My big pushback on it is that I have found a need for these, you know, infielders for the second infield. I don't want to call them backups, right? Cause MI and CI are starters, you know, as far as the roster goes, but they're more considered like fantasy backups and they run out fast particular man i thought second base was bad shortstop is really 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 tough really tough maybe more than anyone else back to that super deep narrative that's going around with shortstop yes for shortstop one the pool is deep for mi when you couple it with the troubles at second base it's not deep there's only one guy i have like even half circled this late. I'm just, I'm like scrolling up and down, kind of desperate for anything. And if we're where we are in the 260s, you got to get Nico Goodrum, or I think you busted out, you know? Uh, I, I love it. And it's kind of bringing me to a point that I, I didn't know that I, I was ex- actually getting to. Um, I think we've covered every position now. Well, I didn't, I didn't mention outfield again, but we talked about it earlier, right? So you've, you've either got to, you know, pick your guy here and take your chances or, or go earlier or, or later. I mean, there's certainly, like I said, stabs uh, on, on guys that, that have question marks later, but to me, what, what this all comes down to is, is exactly what you've said here is what do you, what do you give up earlier? And you, you can't give up, you can't miss out on all the big upside um, that I was talking about with outfielders. You can't, you can't wait on first and third. We just looked at that. Uh, it appears that you can't wait on shortstop because there aren't any here <laughs> other than Cesar Hernandez and Castro. Um, I think those are decent middles here, but, uh, but what I, what I would love to get here other than, other than a second baseman is a, is a pitcher. And um, the reason for that is manifold for me. I mean, for one thing, I'm, I'm, I am sort of subscribing it. I think it sounds like a little more than you to, to getting at least a couple aces in the first four rounds. Uh, the reason for that is so I can wait on pitchers later. And I'm not waiting until the 18th round to grab my third pitcher, but I might actually be waiting until this point in the draft or right around here to get my fourth or fifth pitcher. Because I do believe that some of the guys we talked about have the upside of guys going even as early as the ninth or 10th round. And I think that those guys in the, even the seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th round are not as uh, not as guaranteed for the playing time and not as guaranteed uh, for the skills that we hope for as, as people might think and as that draft capital uh, is worth. So I don't 
I wish the, 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 the downside point here for me is that I don't love these guys here, but uh, if anybody falls here or I might even be willing to, to, to jump a pitcher here, it seems like 18th, 19th round is a pretty interesting spot to grab a pitcher. When, I'll just throw out a, a little teaser for a guy that is 10 picks later than we got. We got to pick 270 and pick 280. Uh, right now, Dylan Bundy is looking pretty interesting, even if you want to reach on him. Yeah, I like I like um, both of the I like both of the Dylans, and I think it kind of goes to your point about you know assessing and reassessing the back end of the pool, especially as the market continues to shape new prices daily. You know, right where we said at this point you're stuck for a shortstop, you might be stuck for a second baseman. You're not really stuck for back end pitching, right? Because if you got if you waited on pitching until this point and then you just started nabbing it all up between Archer and Savale and Dylan Bundy, the other Dylan I was talking about was Dylan Cease, maybe like a Josh James. Um, there's a potential there to you – know, listen, you're never going to get all of them to hit. I think it's unrealistic, right? And that's why no one builds a full pitching staff beyond pick 300. But it is realistic if you took four or five of those guys that maybe two – and maybe three of them are, are really good, you know? So yeah. they, they're kind of – these back-end pitchers, I think, are closing the gap on the blob in the middle. So I'm – as we vocalize all this stuff, and again, as prices are changing, I'm probably finding myself a little bit more in line with what you were saying about maybe avoiding shopping in the late 100s, right, the 151 to early 200 range in pitching, because yes. maybe the, the gap – maybe the gap between – Pitching at pick 180 and pick 280 is not nearly as um, as close as the disparity in second baseman at those same spots. Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. And and another way to say it would be that, you know, while these pitchers might be the best value you can get at this point in the draft, the pitchers in that sort of, you know, 100 to 200 range might be the worst value you could get. Because, you know, at pick 100, you're still getting the the Castellanos and the, you know, like outfielders that are following too far. And, you know, maybe even like a Josh Bell's around pick 100. Uh, at pick 200, you're getting all the, you, you have the opportunity to get all the, um, the, the, the upside picks, you know, for the, I'm talking, I'm thinking about guys like, um, uh, who do I like there? Christian Walker, Chris Davis on a bounce back. Um, uh, well, a little earlier, you, sh- you know, in the, in, in the 150 to 200 range, you could take upside on guys like J.D. Davis and uh, Gavin Lux and Scott Kingery, anyone in that range, uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of interesting non, non-pitchers there, and the pitchers there to me are just not um, surefire things, so... And, and maybe I'm even even later than I was talking about because I was talking about, you know, even this, the eighth and ninth round. And so the, the hitters there are even more valuable. But I think that's, you know, that's sort of the the point I wanted to to drive home when I when I started thinking about this uh, at the end of our going through these rounds. And, and that's, you know, if the value uh, you're you're getting in any particular point in the draft, in this case the 17th and 18th round, is not what you want for a certain position. Look elsewhere, and yeah. you know, and 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 going back to your point very early that we made about um, 
you know, sort of starting at the back of the draft and then moving forward, the fact that you can find those pitchers here and that they might actually be the best, best value here uh, might mean that there's some values for you at other positions earlier. So it all, it all kind of makes sense to me. It's kind of coming together, uh, you know, in a, in a matrixy sort of way where I see the numbers moving, <laughs> but, yeah, but, yeah. uh, but I appreciate you talking through that with me and I, we've been talking for a while. So I guess we'll, uh, We'll give people their their ears back, but this to me that's a that's a pretty great takeaway and a pretty actionable point that people can you know agree with or disagree with. But um, I just I think it's really good food for thought. So so thanks so much for uh, helping me get there. That was great, man. Well, um, tell everybody. I know you mentioned the Turn Two podcast, so say a little bit about that and and tell everybody what else you're working on because I know you're you're a busy. You're one of the hard, most hardworking people that I've uh, met in this industry of hardworking people. Well, I really I really appreciate that. I was telling you that earlier. It's funny. Sometimes I get my nose in the desk for so long that by the time I pick up my head, I don't realize the environment has changed. And this last time, I kind of picked my head up, and all of a sudden, I was working at the athletic, you know, like, I, it's just, I don't know how that really happened other than That's you know, awesome. funny, like you said, I'm so focused inward and on my work that I don't, you know, I don't really realize. Cause I really am, even though I'm kind of brash Brooklyn dude, like I really am very humble. So to hear like people that I always followed were reading my stuff and were loved it. I was whatever. It's just been totally surreal. Um, so yeah, I'm on the turn two podcast every week. We're doing at least one, me and Matt Williams. We just had, Man, a couple monster guests on. We just had uh, Pete Draftcheat on. We just had Derek Van Riper on. We just had Derek Cardi on. And today we have Alex Fast from Pitcher List on. So we're kind of racking up these the Mount Rushmore. You know, I want to strike while the iron is hot before people forget who the hell I am. Um, well, and let then, me just let me just give my uh, <laughs> let me let me let, let me give my stamp of approval. I mean, obviously th- those guests are awesome. You guys are killing it. But I, I really have enjoyed the Turn Two podcast. I like the crossover episodes with uh, with Mike Curland uh, and Bases Loaded too. So you guys are just doing a great job there. So but hey, continue. I, I, I know you have Thanks, other coach. irons in the fire. So so I'll let you continue. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, and then, yeah, yeah, I mean, man, it's just, I, and like I said, I feel weird being like me, 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 But yeah, I got stuff at The Athletic going on, and it's not, you know, I'm doing something a little bit different. You know, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just like player analysis and stuff. I've kind of been developing a couple of new metrics that uh, have been, it's a lot of fun. It's a little bit different, and one of them is kind of picking up some steam. So I encourage anybody to get over there. Um, you know, if you have a subscription, uh, by all means, check out the actual article. If you don't, don't be intimidated by the paywall. You get at me on Twitter and, you know, I've got I got the blessing from the higher ups to share the information because, you know, like I said, it's a new metric. It's a hard versus soft rate. It's viewed similarly to like K minus walk to build more of a of a picture. So this hard minus soft obviously doesn't just incorporate hard because we also want to induce soft contact. So I'm combining the two and it's giving us a new look at like a, a pictures kind of contact profile. And man, I've had some of the powers that be get at me about it. I've had some pro players get at me about it and they're expanding it. Well, you know, we're it's been it's been really, really cool. So anybody that hears this and wants to see the leaderboard. By all means, you come at me, you're going to get it for free. Okay, I'm not, I don't really keep my stuff, but if you want to see the article, you got to go to The Athletic. But if you want the leaderboard, you tell them, you know, common sense send you, and, and I got you. That's awesome, man. You know, it's funny, like, with all the work that people like you, like Alex Fast, like every, like Alex Chamberlain, all these, all these 
uh, metrics you guys are working on. I mean, it's amazing how far we've come in the last five years with StatCast and before that with Fangraphs. But five years from now, who knows what we're going to be looking at? So well, I love I, it. I mean, I, I tell this exactly this point, and I don't want to go on another tangent, but I do tell – I would like to encourage newer players to take what you just said and apply that. Okay, there was always this feeling that, oh, there's been guys playing fantasy baseball for 40 years. Well, that may be true, and they have experience, and they're not to be demeaned. Because there is a brand new information set, uh, I like to, my analogy is with surgeries, right? So let's say you had a doctor, your parents were going to him for 40 years. Okay, technology is moving the way that surgeries are performed. If your surgeon, who is very bright, continues to keep up, then he can combine that experience with the new tech. If you have an old school baseball analyst who is not applying these new statistics, he as you know, he is at risk of falling behind. So there is room in the space to be new and daring. And you shouldn't just let somebody tell you you don't know what you're talking about because they've been around the block a few times. You know, this new information is opening windows of opportunity for new types of digestion and, and applicability. Absolutely, man. And you know, the more uh, the guys out there doing stuff like this, I, I don't, I don't think people are are as quick to tell you you can't do this anymore because because there's so many guys doing it. So it makes it hard. Good, makes, good, makes good. the ar- argument harder against. Right. Well, uh, so again, just thanks so much, John, for for joining me. Um, I know everybody's gonna really enjoy this, and I I love that we came up with some takeaways, you know, there at the end, especially, but sort of all throughout on on players. Uh, whether we agreed or disagreed, it's just an interesting conversation. So yeah, uh, I knew it would be productive, right? I talked about the takeaway factor, and yeah. I really feel like the feedback on this is going to be like, wow. Again, you, you don't need to like my guys, you know? That's fine. It's right, not right. If it's here, we kind of opened up the we kind of opened up the vault a little bit and showed you the process. You know what makes the clock tick, man. So I had such a good time. I was I'm flattered that you had me on. You know that you value my opinion and stuff. I, I really anytime, man. I had such a good time. Well, I really appreciate your time. I could talk all day, but um, well, we'll... I think we did. <laughs> I think we did. You know what? I just noticed that uh, TGFBI is a little timestamp when we're talking for people, but TGFBI kicks off in one minute. Yes, uh, the draft. The draft Who's starts. Be the first so. person to take four hours, right? Everybody's so excited for this draft, <laughs> and then the first guy takes four hours. So if the draft starts in two minutes, that means in seven minutes the complaining begins about how slow it's going. <laughs> by the end, of, by the end of the day, we'll go from excitement to womp womp pretty fast. Yes, exactly. So. All right. Well, just to remind everybody, you are on Twitter at MLB Moving Average, right? Thank you. Yes. Okay, and I, I think people know I'm Common Sense FBB. So thanks for listening, everybody. And as always, stay classy, Planet Baseball. <laughs>